It is an Olympic year, which means epic gold-winning performances, unknown names becoming household names, displays of athletic prowess, human beings being pushed to their absolute limits. Who will be the next Mary Lou Retton? Who will be the next Carl Lewis or Mark Spitz? Who will be the next Nadia Kamenichi or Michael Phelps? However you look at it, the Olympics are always an exciting time. They carry the aura of something great. <laughs> Even if you're not really much of a sports fan, you turn in at this time of the year or once every four years to check out what's going on with the Olympics and the world comes together to watch. In my own household, my kids cannot wait for the Olympics to get here and truthfully, neither can I. Why is it that we love the Olympics so much? What is about them that grabs our attention? I think part of it's the fact that they only happen once every four years. There is a rarity about them, which makes them extra special when they come around each time every four years. There's also the sense that it, there are people from your country going against people from other countries. So when you see, in our case, an American out there, you are rooting hard for them. You have a vested interest that your country representative is going to defeat someone from another country, and you get excited to root for them as they come along. I think that's part of the excitement with the Olympics. I think there's also certainly the thrill of going for victory. And if you win, if you achieve that gold medal, your name gets written in the history books. That's incredibly exciting to think about and experience and watch. But I think even in spite of those things, there's an even greater reason for why we are drawn into the Olympics and fascinated with the Olympics. I think ultimately we are drawn into the Olympics because of the results of the sheer brilliance of what the human body can do when it is pushed to its absolute limit. We are drawn to the Olympics because we marvel at what is possible with constant training and discipline that pushes the human body to its maximum potential. So to think that a human being can run 100 yards under 10 seconds, to think that a human being can run a whole quarter mile under 50 seconds, to watch a human being jump from a high platform and do twists and turns and land perfectly in the water, to see the artistry and the accuracy of shooting an arrow right into the middle of a bullseye, to watch perfectly synchronized swimmers do every movement in unison, or to watch the power found from those polo guys in the water and their endurance and how hard they can throw the ball after being in the water for such a long time, or maybe to watch the rowers who again in perfect unison are demonstrating something beautiful to the rest of us as they race across the water. It's all breathtaking, or at least has an element of being breathtaking to us. We are drawn in, I think, to the sheer determination and commitment that these athletes make to perfect their skill. They literally come and give all of their lives to it. We are drawn to the results of the tremendous sacrifice that each and every athlete makes in order to maximize their potential. And it is inspiring. And so we love to come and watch the Olympics and see who's going to rise up in the pressure and see what they can achieve and do things they've never done before. Exactly what kind of commitment are we talking about? Candy Merrill, back in 1984, was in the Olympic Games and she won gold in the pairs synchronized swimming. 
She describes for her as a synchronized swimmer what was needed to achieve the level of commitment and excellence that they reached. She describes that for her, they needed training in dancing. They needed training with weights. They needed training in swimming. She describes 12 to 14 hour days, six to seven days a week for a good four years leading up to those Olympics. Most days started at 3.30 a.m. And again, this is for synchronized swimming. She describes the emotional and time commitment that was needed. She said there has to be some form of tunnel vision that you have because literally you eat, sleep, and breathe your event and your practice and everything leading up to it. If you want to be faster, higher, stronger than everyone else, she says you have to literally give your life to it. And then you and I get to tune in once every four years and see the results of all this focus and all this discipline and all this training. And the results are spectacular. But what you and I don't see are the endless hours of discipline, training, focus every single day, getting up at 3.30 in the morning when it's cold and dark out, watching every burpee or sprint that they would do, every mundane hour of training, every scripted meal that they would eat. We don't see any of those things. We don't see the single-minded focus it takes to compete and achieve victory. We don't see the day-in and day-out choices over four, six, eight, ten, twelve years that produce such amazing results. Choices that are always made with the ultimate prize in mind. The ultimate prize that lies before them to win that gold medal. And the, the, the single-minded focus that it takes to achieve that, it is powerful when we see the results of it. And church, this is what Paul is sharing with us here this morning. Be all in. It takes a single-minded focus. This is not an add-on to your life. This is your life. The Olympics began in 776 BC in Olympia, Greece. With just one race at the time, it was the 200-meter race. And over time, as the games grew in importance and familiarity, more and more people in the world took notice and began to follow them. The Apostle Paul would have been one probably very familiar with the Olympics. In fact, it's quite possible that he liked and enjoyed the Olympics. Because in his writings, Paul many times gives references to training and to discipline, athletic metaphors. He talks about focus. We hear this morning from Philippians chapter through brothers and sisters. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, be all in. Strain Press forward, go all in, be disciplined, sacrifice in order to achieve greatness in the kingdom of God, in order to win the prize for which God has called us to. We need discipline and training in our lives, and we strain towards that goal each and every day, in every choice, in the big moments, but also in the small, tedious moments. Forget what lies behind, says Paul, and strain forward. You've seen what straining forward looks like. You've seen the end of a race and a sprint or even a longer race when you're nearing the finish line and you see those runners lean in with all that they have. They're forgetting what's behind them and they're literally throwing themselves at the victory line, hoping to win, leaving nothing behind, holding nothing back. 
The word here for Paul that he uses for press on is the Greek word dioko. And it literally means to pursue, but it's even stronger than that. We get our English word persecute from it. It means ensue, follow after, give to, even be willing to suffer for and press forward. It's a way of giving one's all. Don't hold anything back. Remember, Paul himself is writing from a prison cell in Rome. He knows what it means to press forward and hold nothing back, even to the point of persecution, because he experienced it himself. So why is Paul doing this himself? Why is he encouraging it of us to press forward and to give his all so that he can win the prize for which God has called us to win the ultimate prize, God's heavenly prize. Paul says, this is what I've given my life for, a life transformed in Jesus Christ for eternity. This is what matters. This is what I'm after. This is what God wants for me, a life transformed in eternity forever and ever and ever. That's my prize and victory. For the original competitors in the Olympics, the prize was a crown of olive branches. Today's Olympic athletes win the gold medal. And remember, these athletes, they give up years and years of their lives to win these prizes, the olive branches and the gold medals. But look what's happening here. These athletes run, practice, train, focus to win a perishable prize, one that will eventually disintegrate or rust or fade away. They give all their time, all of their attention, all their lives to ultimately win a prize that is perishable. But Paul says, I have an even greater prize to live for, to strain for, to press forward with, to give my all for, to be disciplined for and trained for and sacrificed for, an imperishable prize, the crown of life itself, a prize that when we get to the end of our race, we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, and live in victory with Jesus forever. It is a prize that brings joy to God. It blesses others. It is a prize worth a life worth living. It is a prize that changes the world and transforms lives. It is a prize that brings heaven to earth. It is a prize that shares the love and the glory of God with everybody. How much more, says Paul, to chase after that kind of a prize than one that corrodes or rusts or disappears after time. As great as a gold medal or the olive branches may be, I have an even better prize, says Paul. A, Paul, a prize that makes us laugh with joy. A prize that makes us cry. A prize that touches us in a way we've never been touched before. Train for that prize, says Paul. And don't you dare hold anything back. Give it all for that. Because that will never, ever fade away. So here's my question for us this morning. To what are we straining, pressing forward with? To what are we being disciplined? What is our prize that we are pursuing with single-minded focus? Where in our lives, choice after choice after choice with discipline, are we choosing to go and press forward with? Now, truthfully, First Church, in so many ways, I do see us straining forward and pressing forward with our eyes on the prize of Jesus Christ. But this morning, in order for us to be the best we can be, to be our best God-given selves, to win the prize that God has in store for us, I want to also lift up one of the greatest challenges that we face. One of the ways that we as a church collectively are not 
all in. To be the best, athletes have to train in such a way that they recognize the challenges before them and face those challenges head on. They name them, they identify them, they clarify them, and they address them with honesty. And they focus on how to get by them. Increasingly in our world, we don't use focus and clarity and honesty in addressing the challenges that are before us. This morning, we want to do those things with honesty and clarity, address our challenges. And today, what I want to ask us to consider is how we are training and pressing forward and being disciplined and being sacrificial when it comes to the sharing of our resources and the giving of our finances for the purposes of ministry. How can we be all in every part of us when it comes to sharing in the kingdom of God, giving even of our finances to make that happen? Because truthfully, for all the ways we are straining ahead, this is an area collectively that we are not. I want to share with you a rather obscure scripture passage. It's from Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, and it says this. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. I came across this passage a little while back in some of my own personal devotional time. Now, I had read this passage many times before, but on this particular day, it struck me in a way it never had before. So I want you to picture for a moment what's going on here. First, we're getting this description of Jesus. And here's Jesus, and he's doing his Jesus thing. He's sharing the good news of God. He's growing the kingdom of God. He's teaching. He's doing miracles. All wonderful things, but all the things that Jesus normally does and the things we think Jesus is doing. So I'm reading that, and I'm kind of like, there's Jesus doing his miracle thing and his teaching thing and his growing God's kingdom thing. Yeah, 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 blah, 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 moving on. And then I'm reading, and I see about the 12 disciples. And again, I'm sort of like, you know, I've heard of them before. They get a fair amount of... fair amount of press in the gospel passages. And so I'm looking at that. And again, you know, they're supposed to be there. They've, they've left their lives behind. They're giving their lives full time into some form of ministry. Jesus was their master, their rabbi. They followed him. Of course, we would expect to hear about the disciples. So I'm reading this passage. I'm like, yeah, yeah, there's the disciples doing what they're supposed to do. Then we're told of some of these people who had experienced the benefits of the ministry of Jesus. People like Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and many others. And then comes the line that struck me. These women were helping support them, that is Jesus and the disciples, out of their own means. Let me, let me say that again. These women who had experienced the benefits of the ministry of Jesus and the disciples now were supporting them, Jesus and his disciples, out of their own means. Why had I not noticed that before? It's not just Jesus changing the world. It's not just his disciples who had left everything to follow him changing the world. It's also these women and many others traveling with Jesus, coming alongside Jesus, giving out of their own financial means to support the work in the ministry of Jesus. So what do we see in this? We see that in order for lives to really be transformed with Jesus Christ as the ultimate prize, what do we need? Well, first we need Jesus first. That is always the case. We don't get very far if we don't start with Jesus. It begins with Jesus. Then you also need people who are giving their lives in full-time ministry or as much as they can in ministry to serve God. And those are great folks as well. 
But then what we see also needed are these individuals who will come alongside Jesus and these disciples with a single-minded focus and zeal and discipline, even with the willingness to sacrifice what they have. Why? To resource the ministries of Jesus and his disciples. They are dioko. They are all in, holding nothing back. So for the heavenly prize to be won in ministry, we see this model being given to us that we are called to follow as well. We see, number one, you begin with Jesus. Again, of course, we start there. Number two, we need disciples who are being called into full-time ministry in some way. But then surprise, we also need number three, a group of people willing to commit to resourcing the ministry through disciplined giving and single-minded focus. Church, that is a model for us. It is what we need at First Church in order to see the most powerful ministry possible occur. Jesus first, a number of staff who will give all of their lives in full and part-time ministry, and then a group of people collectively who will come alongside and say, I believe in what we are doing. I believe in what God is calling us to do, and I will do everything in my power, giving whatever I can to resource this ministry for the transformation of lives on this earth and for eternal impact. I will be in. Now, I am thrilled to say, as I stand with you here this morning, Jesus Christ is first here at First Church. We may fall short at times, but unabashedly, we lift high the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we seek in every single way, every single day, in every single moment to give all of our lives to Jesus Christ, that not only our lives, but our world and the lives of all who are in it might be transformed for the glory of God forever. We are unabashed about that. Number two... As one who works closely with the staff in this place, I can tell you, I can witness to you, I can vouch to you. The staff who come here to serve you, they genuinely love Jesus and they genuinely love you. And they want to do everything they can to serve you. We make mistakes. They are not completely perfect. I am absolutely not perfect, but I can tell you, I watch the folks that I serve with every day and they do multiple jobs. They do many more hours than what is required of them to pull things together and help us keep moving forward so that you can be served. And I see it day in and day out. They truly go above and beyond for the sake of Christ. But church, what we most need right now, the greatest challenge that is before us are Luke 8, 3 supporters and and ones who offer themselves and their resources for the ministry of God. A group of people willing with complete focus and a sacrificial, disciplined approach to say, I am here to offer what I can for the ministry and support of God. This, again, is the single greatest challenge that we face. Now, I want to be clear as we share that this morning. There are some among us who are, but collectively we fall way, way short in this area. We know that any great endeavor encounters challenges. You ask any athlete, any Olympian, they will tell you the road to success is never easy. They always have to overcome injury, the opponent, fear, doubt, and a thousand other barriers that they have to overcome. And it's the overcoming of those obstacles that makes getting the prize that much sweeter. But challenges can only be overcome if they're identified, named, and addressed. So in loving honesty, we cannot address our challenges without, in love, naming them, identifying them, and addressing them. So this morning, let me share just a little bit about what some of that challenge is for us. This past week, many of you who are connected on a regular basis with First Church received a letter. 
And in that letter, it states that we are projecting a significant financial shortfall for the year 2017. Right now, our projections show it will be well over $300,000 that we are short heading into 2017. Because of that, we're actually doing our stewardship focus now during the summer. So by the time we get to the fall, we will have a very accurate picture based on what people are committing for our budget and the decisions we have to make heading into 2017. Now, there are a variety of reasons for this projected shortfall, and I encourage you to look at the letter or a pamphlet that will further explain that. But if I may this morning be very frank with us, let me just say the reason for our financial shortfall projected going into 2017, it's not because we have too many staff. Our staff agonize about every decision that we make and how we spend the resources that we have. And I see them day in and day out doing all they can just to keep up with what is currently there. And oftentimes not even able to finish everything because they are doing multiple jobs at the same time. We do our very best. And at the same time, a number of our staff positions have been eliminated over the course of the last couple of years as we try better and better to be the best stewards that we can. I see our staff forego a a number of things they could really use in ministry because they say, well, I can make do without it. At the same time, like many of you, we're facing increased expenses. That's no secret to anybody. We're expecting our health care coverage alone for 2017 to be at least 20% higher. It could be substantially more than that. Again, I know we all face those kinds of challenges, but here's the single biggest challenge I believe we face, and that is a lack of Luke 8 supporters. Now we have some, and again, thank you to those of you who are already doing what you can and living fully into giving in the ways that God has blessed you with. Your faithfulness is allowing ministry to occur even now. And I don't know what we would do if you weren't giving in that way, but collectively as a whole church, we're not doing this. We are not as individuals striving ahead with a disciplined focus saying, I want to be all in on this. And even if I can't be there every day serving with my hands, I will use whatever resources God has blessed me with so that I can be a part of this holy thing that I believe God is doing. God's command in scripture is so clear on this. This is one of those few things. There's no ambiguity. We don't have to debate it. It's just super clear. God says, I want you to tithe. Give your first 10% to me. I'm not sure why we view that as optional. Malachi 3.10 says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I don't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, there will not be enough room to store it all. Then Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law. Don't think I've come to change what's already been set up. I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. So Jesus isn't changing our perspective on tithing. It is clear we are to tithe, and yet the vast majority of us, truthfully, we don't. (laughs) Mike Slaughter says this in his book, The Christian Wallet, that the average congregation has only 10 to 25% of those who attend as people who tithe. That means only about one out of 10 of us to one out of four of us actually take God's command seriously to tithe. He also shares this. He says that today, Christians give about 2.5% of their resources to the church. Back in the era of the Great Depression, which should have been or was a more difficult economic time, they actually gave over 3%. So now, in comparatively better times, we give even less than we did during one of our nation's most challenging economic times. And I know things are difficult now as well. But think about that, how little we give. What needs to happen in order for us to finally see money as a spiritual issue? What needs to happen in our hearts to see giving as a faith issue? 
What needs to happen for us to realize and make the connection that God uses our giving as the very oxygen that facilitates ministry in this place? This is why Jesus spent nearly 40% of his parables illustrating how faith should inform what we do with our money and our possessions. Jesus knew this was a big deal. He knew we would struggle so much with this. So we talked about it a whole, whole bunch. And church, if we're really honest with ourselves, we acknowledge it is difficult for us to claim Jesus as Lord of all of our lives when he rarely is even Lord of our finances. God, you can have all of me, my soul for eternity. I am all yours. Well, not this part. It is difficult to say that we are running and striving and giving everything we've got for the glory of God. When the average general American consumer unit gives about $1,800 of its annual income to charitable causes. And of that, about $700 a year goes specifically towards church or religious purposes. But here's what's interesting. In our country, we also spend collectively about $370 million a year on pet costumes and $5 billion a year. I love this one. $5 billion a year on entertaining ringtones for our devices. (laughs) This is why Paul comes and says, you have got to have an athlete's focus. You have got to have tunnel vision because it's too easy to get distracted. It is too easy to use your resources in other places. Athletes commit to training for years on end because they believe in what they are doing. That gold medal means so much to them that they will give all of who they are for years on end to achieve it. So I would ask us as we gather here this day and as we're watching online and wherever we might be this day, do you believe in what God is up to at first church? Because the truth is money follows mission. We give to what we believe in. I shared with us earlier that I do see us straining forward in many ways to the glory and honor of God, doing the best that we can to serve God. One of those ways is every week right here in this particular space, We live out the biblical mandate given by Jesus himself to reach out to the least, the lost, the lonely, the broken. We share together in a community meal and worship with 150 to 250 people. And then every other week now, we send folks home with food so that they will have meals in their own home between the times that we gather. In that setting, we have seen people accept Christ or recommit themselves to Christ. We have seen people offer themselves in new ways. But truthfully, if we get even $100 at first night. It's been a good night. We don't ever see that being a place where tons of financial resource will come in. So we need other people, Luke 8, three people who will come along and say, you know what? I believe in that. I believe in the ways you are tangibly trying to offer love and grace to people in the name of Jesus Christ. I believe in you reaching out to them and offering God's love and seeing people come to know Christ in new ways. I will strain forward with you with singularity of purpose, whether I can physically be with you or not. And I will do everything I can to resource that and make it happen. I am all in with you. Do you believe in what we're doing? What God is doing here? I've shared with you a couple weeks ago, we had over 300 kids as part of our vacation Bible school this year. Amazing just to be with those kids for that week. Just one story, one example from our 300 kids. The story of Bella who on Thursday of that week heard and understood and comprehended for the very first time that Jesus Christ had died for her. 
And she was so moved by that that she began to cry and be in tears herself, thankful that God was willing to do that on her behalf. It so moved her that she went home and started talking to her mom about how Jesus had helped her. So now she wanted to help somebody else. And she said to her mom, mom, can we take my long hair and can we cut it off so that a wig could be made for a child who is sick and has no hair? I want to help them because Jesus has helped me. Do you believe in what God is doing in this place? We are currently in the process of planting new faith communities connected with First Church through our Acts network. Our world is changing so rapidly, it will take people of faith, ingenuity, creativity, and faithfulness in God to reach out in new ways in our world and culture and say, we will go and meet you on your turf because we want to know you and we value and we love you and we want you to know the beauty of God's grace like we do. And so right now we have nine different communities that have been started affecting over 130 different people. 130 new opportunities to help people connect to Jesus and begin to grow in discipleship. Do you believe in what God is doing here? This year, we're expecting over 400 people to be involved with our Transform Week, the first week of August, August 1 to 5. And I certainly hope all of you, and I hope everyone watching online, and I hope everyone at every one of our worship locations will be a part of this week, even for one day. We're expecting a number of churches to come together in the community so that for that one week in particular in our community, instead of hearing about our divisions and our violence and the ways we're not getting along and all of the problems on that week, we can come together and tangibly be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to offer acts of goodness and grace and beauty and join with God in creating something holy in this place. Do you believe in what God is doing among us? First Nursery has reached its full capacity, 135 kids every week, five days a week that they had the opportunity, Kathy and her teachers, to pour in God's love into these children at a most foundational level as they are just starting off on the path of life. Do you believe in what God is doing in this place? In the last five years, we have seen over 250 people take deeper steps of discipleship by joining First Church or being baptized or offering themselves in profession of faith. Do you believe in what God is doing in this place? And I could go on and on, whether it's involvement with Fuse and our youth ministry or Open Gym or our Stephen ministers or Family Promise or so many other things that we could touch on. Do you believe in what God is doing in this place? I do with every fiber of my being. And let me tell you with all the great things I just mentioned, that is just the tip of the iceberg. If, if we keep Jesus first and the disciples join in full ministry to the best of their ability. And collectively we have a group of Luke eight, three people who say, I am all in and I will support this and breathe life into it through my prayers and through my giving and through my finances, because I believe what God is up to here. I hope and I pray that you do believe in what God is up to here. And if so, will you press forward to give to God's kingdom in this place? Will you rise to the challenge, jump higher, go farther, run faster with sacrifice, determination, discipline, and training to give to what you believe in? It is as simple and as difficult as focus, commitment, sacrifice, follow through. So beginning today and over the next number of weeks, I'm going to be asking for your prayers. And I'm going to be asking you to be all in, in the ways we are talking about, but particularly through our giving 
and moving to tithing and even beyond and strain forward, forgetting what is behind and pressing towards the imperishable prize found in Jesus Christ, that we would be amazed at what God could do with that. Will we rise to that challenge?